I'm reminded, Lord, of uh, the psalmist when he was in one of the most difficult spots of his entire life. He was uh, hemmed in. He was trapped. He saw no exit. He saw no way of resolution. And he called out to you, and he said, I will cry to God most high. To God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. And sometimes we are not only trapped, but we are trapped by circumstances, and we are closed in. And there are those who are surrounding us that are in high places, that have power, that have authority, that have positions of influence. The fact is, they may be high, but you are most high. You are the Most High God. We are grateful that we know you. We are grateful that you have sent your Son, the Lord Jesus. We are grateful that your Spirit has worked to open our hearts. You've opened our eyes to see the truth of the Gospel. We are on a journey now, following you, walking with you. It's not an easy journey. It's one that is full of peril, it's full of difficulty, it's full of hardship. It is the very best journey, and there are many moments of joy, and there are many moments of uh, well, just of delight. But there are also, there are also times, Lord, when we absolutely feel hemmed in, uh, circumstantially, uh, it, it, it might be, especially in this day and age, an economic issue, financial issue. We just don't see any resolution. We don't see any movement. We don't see any liquidity, any way, shape, or form. And, and that's discouraging, and it takes the heart out from under us. So we cry to God Most High. It could be a marriage situation where it just seems like it'll never change. Uh, it, it, it can be health. It can be a wayward child. It can be a, a friendship that has gone downhill and where there's been betrayal and there's no trust. It can be a thousand different things. And we don't see how it could ever change. We don't see, see how things could ever turn. But as the psalmist said, I'll cry to God most high. You are the God who accomplishes all things. You will send from heaven and save me. We uh, are in constant need of a Savior, constantly. Every moment we're in need of Christ. And when our lives are going well, and when our plans are succeeding, and when our goals are being accomplished, and when we're checking off our list, and it's all going to plan, and it's all going to schedule, See, that's the way we like it to be, but that is a very dangerous place to be in. Because our hearts, as the old hymn says, our, our hearts are prone to wander. We are prone to leave the God we love. And in your goodness and in your mercy and in your kindness, you afflict us. 
you afflict us at times. Sometimes you use the enemy, sometimes you use circumstances, but ultimately you afflict us in order to get our attention. You afflict us in order for us to realize our need of you. So tonight, as we are inevitably all dealing with different things and different issues of different degrees in our lives, we take a moment and we just stop and we check our heart to make sure that we are submitting to you, that we prefer your plan over our plan. Your plan is infinitely better, and sometimes we don't get it, sometimes we don't understand it, but we know this. You are the God who accomplishes all things for us. You haven't forgotten us. You'll send from heaven and save us, no matter where we are. Our hope is in you alone. Teach us tonight. May your spirit take the word, apply it individually, as you do every time the Bible is opened. Apply it to each guy, his unique situation, his unique circumstances. We're amazed at how you do that, but you always do it. We are grateful for the ministry of the Spirit of God through the Word of God. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians 6, continue our uh, study. Spiritual warfare. Let's just go ahead and pick up the text, Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord. Actually, he says finally, because he's bringing the book to a conclusion. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, it's against the powers, it's against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So that has to be understood as I look at the events going on around the world, as I look at events going on in this nation, as I look at events going on uh, in, uh, on the international front. There is a spiritual battle. There are unseen forces. It, it has been going on since Satan rebelled, and it will continue until Satan is cast into the lake of fire. And there's even more detail we could go into, but we won't. There, there will be a time when it will come to an end. But we're in it now. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God. Uh, spiritual warfare, when you're in spiritual warfare, you take up every piece of armor. It's not a buffet line. You don't uh, say, yeah, I'll pick up the belt of truth and skip over the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, you take them all, because you need every single piece. Take up, what does it say? 13, therefore take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and, have it, and, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, or literally having put on the belt of truth. We looked at that last week. And then tonight, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. It's amazing how this armor is all interconnected. Last week we talked about uh, putting on the belt of truth. It, it's interesting that the enemy, one of his primary weapons is to attack 
God's word. There is no more passage in the Bible, there's no more section of the Bible that is more attacked than the early chapters of Genesis, especially Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that and you go to the university, you'll be mocked. Uh, you'll be scorned. You can go to some seminaries, and if you take Genesis 1, just as it is written, you'll be mocked. You'll be scorned. You can send your kid off to a Christian college, and many of them don't believe Genesis 1. They, they, they say they do, but in actuality, they don't. Uh, now, that's, that's very interesting, isn't it? That Genesis 1 is so savagely attacked. Uh, ever since uh, Darwin made his observations and, and wrote his uh, book, Origin of the Species, which is really somewhat of an arrogant title for a man to write. Origin of the Species. In other words, here's how it really happened. Uh, if you know anything about Darwin, you know there was a great wound in his life. He had some serious issues with God because of the death of his young daughter. There, there, there was an emotional issue that was going on. Uh, he also hung out with bad theological company. He hung out with people who did not believe, church people. He was part of a denomination that did not believe that the Bible was the Word of God. People who did not believe that Genesis 1 was, was the actual Word of God. Jesus said in John 8, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Some of you, your Bibles, have the word of, words of Christ in red. Some publishers will do that. If they were really consistent, your entire Bible would be printed in red. Because it's all the word of Christ. Even Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when it says, God created the heavens and earth... It's speaking not just of the Father, but Jesus was the creator. By him, all things were created. He's the creator, you see. Now, here's something that's interesting. Satan is always attacking the belt of truth. The belt was the central piece. Other pieces were attached to it. If you're wrong on the central premise, if the Bible is not the word of God and they've been trying to prove how many hundreds of years now that it isn't, but it's still here, it, it's, it, it, it still is changing lives. Wasn't it Voltaire that said something to the effect that this book will be completely irrelevant within the next 50 years? And 50 years later, I believe it was the Geneva Bible Society was headquartered in his home. Don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. I hear something else. If, if the Bible is wrong in the very first chapter, 
And, and again, we'll hear Christian, quote-unquote, Christian scholars, Christian universities, who don't hold Genesis 1. Yet they say they're evangelical. They, uh, here, here's a question. If it's wrong right out of the blocks, why would you trust anything in there? If God can't get it right in the first chapter, then why would you trust John 3.16? That's quite frankly not much of a God if his revelation is flawed right out of the starting blocks. It doesn't make any sense. So the enemy is always attacking the truth. The truth. Uh, or he's uh, attempting to twist the truth. So last week we, we see the importance of uh, putting on the full armor of God. First piece, the belt of truth. If, if you don't have the Bible, you're in trouble. And we, we, we always have heresies. We always have teachers coming up uh, who are, are attempting to sway us, that are attempting to say, well, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really mean that. It really doesn't say that. It, it's this or it's that or... This is, this, 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 is, this is very nuanced. There's a, there's a deeper meaning. No, you take the plain, normative sense of the passage. The problem with so much of this is, is that they don't like what it says. You know, something that's been interesting to me over the years is uh, whenever John Calvin's name comes up, in fact, his name doesn't come up, they always, but they'll say Calvinism. And people say, well, I don't like Calvinism. Uh, okay, well, that's fine. But whenever I have read John Calvin, he was the first one to write an entire commentary verse by verse on the Bible. Uh, I, I, I've got his whole set of commentaries in my study. I'll often look to see what Calvin had to say about a particular passage. And you know why I look at Calvin's commentaries? Because he was so careful. And because he was so precise and because he was so committed to explaining exactly what the text said, not what he wanted it to say, but what it actually says. And because some of the things in the Bible, uh, quite frankly, people don't like, and well, I don't agree with that. Well, okay, fine. But the thing I appreciated about Calvin was that he would attempt to rightly divide the word of truth. He would simply say, this is what it says, fits this over here, this might be hard for us to absorb, but this is the clear teaching in this passage. And you got to say, yeah, it is the clear teaching. And then be like, yeah, but I don't like that, or I wish, I think it's this. Or, well, what does it say? And scripture interprets scripture, and you, and you take all scripture. The reason I'm going off on this and, and bringing it up is that it is important that we have the belt of truth on. It's important that we rightly divide the Word of God. It's important that we do not impose uh, our desires. It's important that we do not uh, impose our opinions on the Scripture. And I'll tell you why. Because ideas have consequences. And if you get truth wrong, it's going to affect how you live. If you get truth wrong, it's going to affect your relationship with the living God. Uh, you put on the belt of truth, and then right after that, you put on, here's the next piece, you put on the breastplate of righteousness. Uh, there is a connection 
between the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. Sometimes they would actually be connected uh, as, as warfare developed over the years. Uh, when you got a breastplate, uh, sometimes it would be, over the years it was leather that had been well oiled and it was thick. Uh, they would put a type of metal in there. It developed where they would eventually just have chain mail. But you, you've seen in museums different armor. It's a breastplate. It's important. It's vital. You know why it's vital? Because it, it protects the vital organs. Uh, it, it covers your thorax. That's a good word, isn't it? How's your thorax? You want your thorax to be in good shape. If your thorax is not in good shape, uh, you got trouble. So the armor, the breastplate, would cover the thorax. It would cover from basically the neck all the way down to the groin. You got vital organs in there. You know, you can get wounded. Someone can, you know, you can be, uh, you know, in the kitchen helping your wife chop something up, and you can, or you can be working in a, you know, in a, in a wood shop, and you can be good and take your tip of your finger off, or you know, you could get probed with a with a butcher knife, and you, gosh, that hurt, you know, golly, and you got to go in and get stitches, or you take the tip off. But you know, it's one thing to get a wound with a knife in a hand. It's another thing to get a wound with a knife in the heart. It's another thing to get a wound with a knife in the liver. Those are vital organs. You can't live without the vital organs. So therefore, when you go into spiritual battle, you better put on the breastplate to protect those vital organs. This is where Satan always attacks. I remember uh, the first time I, I, I saw Rocky. My friend Robert Lewis, we were going to seminary, and Robert, I, 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 he said, hey, Steve, we, we, I, so we were, I don't know what we were doing, we were in class or something. He goes, hey, Sheridan and I last night, we saw this movie. He said, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen. And uh, I said, the greatest movie you've ever seen? And he said, yeah. He said, what's it called? I said, it's called Rocky. I said, what is, it? what is Rocky? He goes, I'm telling you, it's the greatest movie I've ever seen. It's about this guy who's a boxer. I said, Rocky? I said, who, who, who's in it? He goes, this guy named Sylvester somebody. I said, well, I've never heard of it. You don't even know his name? He goes, no. But he said, I'm telling you, it's the greatest movie I've ever seen. And he kept talking about that movie. You know, throughout the day, we, I'd see him after class. Where he, said, he said, I'm telling you, you got to go see that movie. you got to uh, and Mary and I were engaged, so I told Mary, hey, we're going to see this movie tonight. And I'm going to say, that's the greatest movie I've ever seen. And it was so great, they made 38 of them. Now, Rocky wasn't real swift, and Rocky had had a lot of setbacks, and, you know. Uh, he'd, he'd had a lot of feats. He was kind of on his last legs, and you know the story. Rocky got in that ring with old Apollo Creed. And Apollo's juking and a better athlete and quick and all that. No, Rocky just kept coming and hitting him in the thorax. 
right? The thorax is your trunk. This is the thorax. You just, just body shots. Just body shots. You know, he couldn't, he couldn't, he, the guy was too quick. I mean, if he's trying, if you want to throw a, a knockout punch, Rocky wasn't quick enough because the guy was too fast. The, guy, the guy's reactions were so quick. So what did he do? And who, who was the old grizzled guy, Burgess Meredith? Get in there, you know, get in there. This guy didn't even have a brain, you know. But he kept telling him, get in the body, get in the body, get in the body. And so Rocky, he'd just keep coming. And what we do? He'd just pound that sucker in the gut. He just kept hitting him, hit, and he kept taking shots. But he kept pounding and pounding and pounding the gut, the thorax. He just kept pounding the guy. Uh, you know, boxers go through 12, 14, 15 rounds, something like that. You know, they're urinating blood for days afterwards. That's a brutal thing. Oh, and by the way, those boxers don't wear breastplates. But if you're in spiritual battle, you, wear, you better be wearing a breastplate. Because you see you're vulnerable. Uh, your heart's there. Um, in the time of Paul, a lot of the philosophers thought that the the heart and the kidneys were the seat of the emotions. I'll tell you what's interesting. The enemy often attacks us in the battle, in, in the body. He'll hit our hearts, which include our minds. They, they include our wills. He will, try to, he, he will try to distort our thinking about the truth. He will try to give you body shots, which jars you, and you're not quite right on truth, or you don't quite interpret truth or you don't have a balanced understanding of the Word of God, or let alone, forget about denying it, if you believe it, he'll still try to cause doubt about, about what God says. He's always hitting you, and, and you see, if, if, if he can get your emotions, well, God doesn't love me, I'm always sinning, I'm always falling short, he, he just keeps pounding you. He just keeps pounding you in the body. And he's relentless. And you keep taking these body shots unless you learn to put on the breastplate of righteousness, you see. Um, but, but this breastplate of righteousness is related to the belt of truth. Uh, let, let me give you an illustration of how the two go together. If, if you don't understand the truth about the righteousness of Christ and what he has done for you, you are incredibly vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy. Incredibly vulnerable. I grew up in a church that uh, preached the gospel. They were strong on uh, the fact that we're lost without Christ. They were strong on the fact that the Bible was the Word of God. They were strong on the fact that Jesus was the Savior, that He was the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. They were strong on all of that. But they were weak on some things. Um, they were weak on, um, well, let me, let, me, let me describe how it affected me, and then I'll show you how they were weak, and how they misunderstood the scripture, and how they misunderstood the truth. Um, we went to church when I was a kid. We went Sunday morning, we went Sunday night, and we went Wednesday night. We went to church. My dad went to church. And my dad loved the Lord, my dad loved the scriptures, and we went to church. 
That's what we did. That's just flat out what we did. So I've been in church all my life. Uh, oh, we were also in Sunday school. So, uh, oh, and then I went to the youth meeting before church on Sunday night. I mean, if they were giving out gold stars, let me tell you something, I was patting. <laughs> I mean, I had all the medals. And at our church, they were very, um, if, if you look at our church, our, that, that church I was raised in, in the, in the historical strains of Christianity, that church would come out of the Wesleyan, Arminian, holiness movement. Uh, John Wesley, Wesleyism, Arminianism, Jacobus Arminius, who, by the way, was opposed to what he understood to be some of the observations of Calvin. That's kind of interesting. So you had, um, so you had Wesleyan, Arminian holiness. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. That's in the Bible. Yeah, but what does that mean? Well, here's, how, here's what I picked up as a kid. Uh, on Sunday morning at our church, it was always an evangelistic message. You got to come to Christ. You got to come to Christ. Then we go back Sunday night, and there'd be another evangelistic message. You need to come to Christ. You need to, are you in sin? Are you hard hearted? And, and, and see, they preached the gospel, but they didn't preach the whole gospel. And they kept quoting the same verses again about being a sinner and about being hard-hearted and about falling short of the glory of God. And as a kid, every time on Sunday night they'd give an altar call, you know what I would do? I'd go forward. You know why? Because I knew I was a sinner. And I'd sin that week. And I knew I was going to sin the next morning. I knew I'd probably sin before we got home and got out of the car. <laughs> and there was no sense. I, never, I, I, I was never taught in our church that what happens when you come to Christ, I was never taught about, what are we looking at tonight? The breastplate of what? Righteousness. righteousness. I was never taught about righteousness. I was taught that I was supposed to be righteous, but I was never taught, in our church, I never heard the book of Romans taught verse by verse. They believed the book of Romans, they just never taught it. They would keep preaching the same thing, and in all honesty, many of the pastors were well-meaning, but they weren't educated men. Uh, they did not know the original language. They uh, were well-meaning men. They believed in the Lord Jesus, but they were not adequately trained. And because they weren't adequately trained, they didn't equip people in the Word of God and in the great truths of the Word of God. They, they really didn't help me put on the belt of truth so I lived in constant fear. See, this is why when, uh, every time there was an altar call, I went forward. Why? Because I needed to have my sins forgiven. Well, you did that last week. Yeah, I know, but I've committed more sin this week. And I lived in constant fear that Jesus would return and I wouldn't go with him. In fact, my brother Mike, when he was about nine, he came home from school and my mom was always there. She was just there. That's just, she was just there. And Mike came home and my mom wasn't there. And that was really unusual. And it kind of concerned me. He goes, where's mom? She's always here. She knew I was coming home from school. And so he called uh, Nana. He got in the house and he called my grandma. And, uh, 
And uh, Nana didn't answer the phone. Oh, where's Nana? And then the only thing, see, if my mom wasn't where she should be, and Nana wasn't where she should be, there's only one conclusion. <laughs> Jesus has come back. And see, what we were taught is if you weren't right with God, at the moment he came back, you weren't going. That's Now, it's funny now. It wasn't funny then. It was eternal insecurity. And it's not funny. It is frightening. So you know what my brother Mike did? Because this is all he knew? He's a pretty sharp kid. You know what he did? He looked up the number of the church office. Nine, ten years old. Calls the church office. No answer. <laughs> now he knows for sure. And he starts crying in the kitchen and sobbing. My mom walks in the door. She'd gotten held up at the grocery store, so I don't know what happened. She said, Mike, what's wrong? And he was, I mean, he was. And you know, I'm going to tell you something. That affected Mike for years. It affected him deeply. It took him, it wasn't way until his college years that he worked his way out of that. Oh, did our church believe in Ephesians 6? Did we believe in putting on the breastplate of righteousness? Yeah, we just didn't have a clue what it was. What is the breastplate of righteousness? All right, remember this, we're in spiritual battle. Yeah, why would you put on a breastplate? Because Satan is going to hit you in the heart and the gut and the emotions. He's going to try and twist you and turn you, and he's going to say to you, you're a Christian? You think you're a Christian? Why do you keep sinning? Why do you keep doing this over and over again? As we looked at last week, we touched on Romans 7. Why do you keep, why do you, and he just hammers you. And if you don't have any protection against the assault of the enemy, you're, you're finished. Because number one, not only do you not have a breastplate, but you, you don't have the belt of truth on if you don't understand what the book of Romans says about the righteousness of Christ. Are you guys seeing why this is important? He is the accuser. He will body punch you to death. Oh, I fall short of the glory of God. Yes, you do. But if you trusted in Christ, ah, well, then something's happened. What has happened? Uh, turn with me, if you would, to, uh, in fact, before we go to Romans, go with me to Isaiah 64, 6. You know the passage in Isaiah 64, 6. Um, it, it, what's it saying over there? It's basically saying in Isaiah 64, 6, the phrase that, that you've heard ever since you've been in church. Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who was unclean, watch this, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Our righteousness is I, I, it's filthy rags. You know that phrase, don't you? The best we have ever done, uh, on our best day of uh, doing the most works, of being patient, the, the best we can ever produce by ourselves, and we're kind of proud of ourselves, and we went the extra mile on it, it's as filthy rags. So we're in trouble. If the best we can produce is filthiness, 
We're standing in front of a holy God. So then flip over to the right to Zechariah. That's one we don't go to often. Not Zephaniah, Zechariah. If you're in Zephaniah, keep going right. If you're in Matthew, go left. Takes a while to find some of these books. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the, uh, page 1330, if you can't find it. In, in my Bible. <laughs> then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So Joshua the high priest is about to get hit in the thorax by the accuser of the brethren, Satan. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan... Now watch this. The Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? Joshua, yes he is. Okay, watch this. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with festal robes. The Savior took away the filthy garments and clothed him in something new. Fresh, spotless, clean. Verse 5, Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing by. That's a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we come to Christ. The filthy rags are taken away and we become clothed in righteousness. When it talks about the breastplate of righteousness, and when the Bible talks about righteousness, there are two kinds of righteousness. Uh, it gets a little technical here, but it can be understood. The first kind of righteousness that biblical scholars talk about is what we would call imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is the righteousness which Christ does for the believer. The second kind of righteousness, and you say, uh, okay, there's a second kind. Yeah, that's imparted righteousness. It'll be a quiz later. Don't worry about this. Just get the general idea. What is imparted righteousness? Right, imparted righteousness is what Christ does working righteousness in the believer. In other words, imparted righteousness is the practical outliving of righteousness in my behavior after I come to know Christ. Let me explain this to you by going to the book of Romans. Show you how this works. Romans chapter 4. Because if we're going to put on the breastplate of righteousness, we've got to get this stuff. See, oh, by the way, and we gotta get we got to get the belt of truth on. So we're going to Romans 4 so we can strap on our belt when it comes to righteousness and, and really get what it means so that, so that we're right on the central teaching. This is critical. Romans chapter 4, and I said 6, but let's just go ahead and start with 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, that's always man's way, is being justified by works. You give enough money to the Red Cross. You give enough money to Cretina victims. You uh, give an endowment to uh, a hospital, to a cancer ward, or something like that. Surely, at the end of your life, God's going to see that, and he's going to take the good, and he's going to take the bad, and he's going to weigh out, weigh it, and you're going to come out ahead. No, because uh, your million-dollar endowment is filthy wrecked. In terms of being accepted and forgiven for your sins, you're in trouble. Okay, I'm in trouble. We're all in trouble. Why are we all in trouble? Because of Romans 3.23. Just flip over there real quick. Some of you know this verse by heart from Sunday school days. Uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'd hear that every Sunday night. I heard Romans 3 every Sunday night. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But somehow I never got Romans 4. Let's keep going. Uh, for what does the scripture say? Now here's what we're going to get into. We're going to get into imputed righteousness. Watch this. And he's going to explain in such a way you'll get it immediately. Okay? For what does the scripture say in verse 3? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's imputed righteousness. Oh, my wallet's in there. But last night, uh, Mary and I went to uh, Patrizio's. There's one in Highland Park and there's one out where we live in Highland Village. So Italian restaurant, pretty good place. So we went over to Patrizio's and uh, had a nice dinner. And I pull out this Patrizio's gift card. And I just handed it to the waiter. And he said, thank you very much. Because somebody, I forget when, had given us a gift with a card, you know, and gift card to Patrizio's, 75 bucks. That's what I said. Hmm, that's pretty good. And the way Mary eats, we can go there 19 times. <laughs> Mary eats like a sparrow. And so, anyway, we went over to Patrizio's, and we had a nice dinner, and I gave the guy the card. And you know what? He said, thank you. And then it came back, and he had the bill, and there was a place for the gratuity. And I said, now, can I put the gratuity on this? He goes, oh, absolutely. And uh, I totaled everything up, and uh, he took it, and it cost me zero. Because you see, somebody had imputed $75 to my account, and it was credited to me. I handed the guy the card. He just said, thank you. He didn't, he didn't ask for ID. He didn't ask for a driver's license. He didn't ask for Social Security. He didn't ask for a birth certificate. He didn't ask for anything. He just took the card. Because, you see, it was credited. The righteousness of Christ has been credited into my account. Sometimes we go through life and we, something will happen to us that's, that's difficult or wrong or it, it causes great pain, and we say, that's not fair. God isn't fair. Let me tell you something. God isn't fair here. Is he? The righteousness of Christ has been credited into my account? You're not talking billions. You're talking trillions. 
You're talking congressional deficit trillions <laughs> that you can't even number, that you can't even fathom, even beyond that. Now, to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything we could ever ask or think or calculate. Can I tell you something? That's not fair. You bet it's not fair. You don't want, hey, the last thing you want is for God to be fair. You want God to be merciful, and he's been merciful. This is all Romans 4. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's us, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Do you see that? That's huge. One more time, what does that say? Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Oftentimes people say, well, I'm not into the Old Testament. Well, you better be because grace is in the Old Testament. They were saved in the Old Testament just like we are. Only they look forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. It's the same Savior. It's the same God. Who out of mercy credits into our account the righteousness of his son. Look at verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That's what happened with Joshua the priest. He's in filthy rags. Satan starts accusing. The Lord won't take it into account. Why? It's been paid for. That's the gospel. That's the greatest thing in the world, is it not? I mean, that's unbelievable. That is, that, I mean, that's, that's it, man. That is it. Gosh. Well, I could be here all night, and I'm, uh, look at verse 11. Uh, speaking of Abraham, oh, look at verse 10. We've got to look at 10. Ah, oh, let's look at all of it. What the heck? No, let's look at 10. Uh, well, you, we, we have to look at 9, because faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Okay? Now, watch this. Do you know, do you know that in the early years of America, if you, uh, when they started law schools, before they got politically correct and anti-God and anti-Bible, when universities actually were existed, to glorify God, and they used to be. I don't know if you knew that or not. And they started law schools. Do you know that they would teach the Book of Romans in law school to teach how to put together a logical argument? Because the logic in the Book of Romans is impeccable. Now watch how Paul just, he wants you to use your mind. So verse 10. How uh, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness, verse 9. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Because see, in the days of Jesus, the Judaizers and all those religious guys said, oh, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. 
That's what the book of Galatians is all about. Oh, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to do this to be saved. You, it's, hey, let me tell you something. It's Jesus plus nothing. I was invited one time to uh, get a call from some... I got a call from a guy. He, um, I hadn't planned on telling the story. I got a call from a guy, and he said, hey, I just read your book, Point Man. This was like, how many years ago is that? It's like 1938. <laughs> it was about 92. He said, hey, I just read your book, Point Man, and we got all the guys in our church reading it. And we, can, we, we, you, you, can we get you up here to speak? And where are you? Oh, I'm up here in Oklahoma. I said, well, yeah, sure. And uh, I said, what church are you at? You know, in such and such Church of Christ. And I said, oh, well, you know, uh, you know I'm not Church of Christ? He goes, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, that's fine. I said, that's fine? I just want to be real upfront with you here because I don't believe that you have to be baptized in water to be saved. I believe you trust in Christ alone. He goes, yeah, that's okay. Yeah, we're good with that. It's fine. <laughs> I want you to come up here and teach the guys about... And I said, you're sure? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. now you need to run this by your guys. You need to run this by your pastor, your minister. And you call me back. And he, you know, about a week ago. He goes, hey, we're good. We're good. I said, now look it. I'm not hedging on anything. He goes, no, you just come up and do... So I went up there and did a thing. They had about a thousand guys up there. And at a certain point, you know, we're just teaching on different issues of leadership and all this. At a certain point, now maybe you're here and you've never understood the gospel and you've never understood this is kind of new to you. But this is this being a spiritual leader, you've got to be connected with Christ. You've got to be born again. Well, here we go. And these are real gracious guys. I, 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 I really want to be kind here. They were very gracious. They were following me in the scriptures. They were very teachable guys. And I said, listen, I want to say something to you guys. And some of you aren't going to like this. But I want to say this to you. The gospel is trusting in Jesus alone. I want to tell you something. Water did not go to the cross and die for your sins. Water was not resurrected on the third day. Water is not seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly making intercession. It's the Lord Jesus, period. And you better, you better be making sure that you trust in Jesus for your salvation alone. Now, baptism is a first step of being a disciple of Jesus. But baptism doesn't save. Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then they called about six months later and asked me to speak at their evangelism conference. <laughs> no, that's true. I said, your evangelism conference? So I went up there and I did. And there was a group of guys at the conference that wouldn't come in. They had to talk them into coming in because they didn't believe I was saved. Why did I tell you that story? You got to get the belt on of truth and you got to get it on right. A lot of well meaning people 
get off doctrinally because all they ever do is read the book of Acts and they don't read the book of Romans. To understand Acts, you've got to understand Romans because there is a, a, a progressive revelation and it's all the word of God. It was the Acts of the Apostles. There was a transition period. The church I was raised in taught that if you're filled with the Spirit, everybody speaks in, everybody speaks in tongues. Everybody. That's the sign. But you read in Corinthians, Paul says, all do not speak in tongues, do they? <laughs> you know, stuff's coming back to me as, as I teach this. <laughs> I remember that in our church, and my dad had been raised in that denomination. His, his dad was one of the earliest pastors in the denomination. My family on both sides, my mom's side, my dad's side, I could walk in pretty much to any church of that denomination in the United States of America, and if they knew my last name was Farrar, I had a connection. That's how well-connected my family was in that denomination. And I remember when I was a, in, in college, and our Sunday school, our college Sunday school class was studying the doctrine of our denomination. And the, and the point of doctrine I was assigned that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is evidenced by, the speak, by speaking in tongues. And I was supposed to give a 20-minute report on that and give the biblical basis for that. And, you know, I mean, I heard that all my life. And I said, well, that's fine. So I started, and I'd really never done any Bible study before that, but I, I got, my dad had some books and some commentaries, and so I started getting some stuff down. And he had a commentary by J. Vernon McGee, and I started reading that, and I went, and what Dr. McGee said, I didn't even know who McGee was, but what the guy, he said, he this, and look at this, and look at that. I went, huh. Huh. I've never seen that, but I never heard that before. Yeah, but they did Acts 2, but then you look over here, and you see, and it didn't, and it wasn't, and, huh. And then I read this commentary, and then I read this, and I read one commentary that said our denomination was a cult. And I went in and I showed my dad and I said, Dad, I'm not sure I buy this. He said, really? He said, why don't you buy it? And I said, well, let me show you. Can I show you this? He goes, yeah, show it to me. Look at that. And he said, look at that. And look over here. It says this. And then over here it says this. And he said, well, he said, that's pretty strong, Steve. And he was chairman of the deacon board. He said, that's pretty strong. I said, well, Dad, what do you think I ought to do? I said, I'd get up there and tell him. <laughs> well, Dad, you know what's going to happen if I do that? He goes, yeah. But he said, uh, Steve, you don't please men. This is the authority. <laughs> I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that. You stand on the word of God alone. You get that belt right, Steve. You've compared this with this and this. Doesn't mean well-meaning people don't have different, but, but you got a strong case there, Steve, so give it. Don't be afraid to stand on truth.
So I did. It didn't go over real well. <laughs> and my dad took the heat the next week in the board meeting. And he never moved. And uh, God used that as a very significant time in our lives, for our whole family, because we just transitioned right out of that. Providence of God, long story. See, it, uh, you read what it says. You read what it says. Uh, look at 22, verse 22. You guys still with me? Am I born, you guys? Look at 22. Well, you know, our family's been in this denomination for years. We've been in this church for years. We've been in a, Who cares? The authority is the word. Where's your belt of truth? I, I remember one time when I was in the Bay Area, I lived in California, and I was flying down for the courses at Dallas Seminary for the Doctor of Ministry degree, and I got on, and somehow, somehow they put me in first class. And I've I never been in first class in my life before, and I'm sitting next to this guy, and he's knocking back the Jack Daniels. How are you doing, son? You know, big Texas guy. Yeah, I'm California. You know, this is, this is kind of a classic Texas high roller, you know. Hey, son, how are you? Good to see you. You know, good to, just a gregarious, you know, he had cow crud on his boots, you know, just, you know, big Rolex, big ring, you know, and just big, big Texas oil guy. And uh, real friendly, outgoing, you know, he'd, he'd had a few. He'd, he'd been on a couple planes that day. <laughs> I'm saying, so what do you do, son? What do you, you know, we're talking, you know, before we got into that, he's, yeah, I'm doing that. He tells me something. Look at that chick. See, it's, boy, I'd like to take a roll in the hay with her, wouldn't you? Wouldn't I? Boy, she'd give you a good time. What do you think? What do you think, huh? What do you think, son? <laughs> this guy, guy doesn't shut up. <laughs> and after about an hour, he says, so what are you going down there for? What are you, what are you doing in Texas? So I'm going to take a class at Dallas Seminary. He goes, Dallas Seminary? He goes, yeah, I heard of that school. You ever heard of First Baptist Church of Dallas? I said, well, sure. You ever heard of Dr. Criswell? I said, sure. He goes, he's my pastor. <laughs> Boy, I tell you, I thought, I, I, yeah, yeah, I bet he is. <laughs> then he started telling me, my first, my first wife and I were married by Dr. Criswell. Man, he never, he never missed a beat. <laughs> oh, yeah, something first back. First, back, back. <laughs> I said, uh, so, so you're involved in the church? Oh, I haven't been involved for years, but, but you know, love, love the church. Love, love Dr. Criswell. I thought, you know, Dr. Criswell here, he'd set you straight real quick, man. He'd have a few things to say to you. Don't you be telling dirty stories and talking about stewards and talking about First Baptist Church. And you may, doctor, I'll tell you what Dr. Criswell said. You may know me, but you need to know Jesus. Look at verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Speaking of Abraham, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that God had promised, that what God had promised, he was fully able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Okay. 
This is imputed righteousness. Um, look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We want to get this belt on. After I went and did that deal at the Church of Christ in Oklahoma, I got a long letter from a guy who said, I'm a Church of Christ evangelist, and I appreciated what you had to say, but I'd like to take a moment and share the gospel with you. <laughs> and he was a well-meaning guy. He sent me about a 10, 12-page letter, and it was all about baptism and all this. And then, and then I said, hey, I appreciate the letter, but I said, you know, you got, the cart, the, uh, you got the cart ahead of the horse, man. You're talking to me about baptism, but you need to go to Romans chapter 9. We're not going to Romans 9. But you need to read Romans 9. Uh, you, you know, you, you, baptism, that, that doesn't make you a Christian. You know what makes you a Christian? The election of Almighty God makes you a Christian. Some of you guys say, oh, I don't like Romans 9. Well, see, then that's your problem. I don't like what that says. Well, that's your problem. I'm not saying you understand it. I'm saying it's the Word of God. Just because I don't get it, well, I don't get it. Well, I don't either. But just because I don't get it doesn't mean it's not true. You got an unconditional election in Romans 9, then you get to Romans 10, and Paul says, But how shall they hear without a preacher? See, the guys that misunderstood Romans 9 historically and took Calvinism further than Calvin ever took it, they quit sending missionaries. Well, if they're elect, they're elect, they'll come. We don't need to send missionaries. Yes, you do, because Romans 10 says, How shall they hear without a preacher? You take the whole counsel of God. Am I making any sense? Yeah. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here, here is imputed righteousness. Here's the gospel. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, what did I say? That, that's, that's imputed righteousness. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, who knew no sin. See, here's the thing. Satan comes and accuses me. He's got all kinds of stuff on me. Right? He's got all kinds of stuff on you. Man, he can work me over. He can hit me in the vitals because I'm a sinner. I still, I still fall short. I roam and the things I want to do, I don't do. He's got all kinds of stuff on me. But when he went and tempted Jesus, he had nothing on Jesus because Jesus never sinned. He didn't have a thing on Jesus because Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. He who knew no sin became sin on my behalf. And, the, and see, what he's saying is, is that the wrath that should have been put on me was put on Jesus and his righteousness was credited into my account and I carry a card it's the Word of God. And when Satan comes and accuses me, I stand behind the righteousness of Christ. I put on that breastplate. And he starts accusing you. I, I know guys that, have, that believe the gospel, that have not understood the, 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 the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, and they, they, they are so hard on themselves. I fail, I fall short, I keep falling short, I keep falling short. Growth is slow in the Christian life. But they can become so hard on themselves and they expect themselves to be perfect. You know what happens? They lose heart. They say, I just can't do this. Well, you couldn't do it in the first place. Jesus did it for you. So you got to hold up the breastplate and say, Satan, I refuse to hear this. I stand behind Jesus. 
But then you got imparted righteousness. And I've got 21 seconds to hit imparted righteousness. But that's Hawaiian Islands time, so I'm not paying attention to it. Even if it's right, I'm not paying attention to it. And if you need to leave, I would understand. But we got to hit Colossians 3. Because now, you see, so, so, so it's been transferred into my account. It's been credited in my account, the righteousness of Jesus, okay? And the filthy rags have been taken off. Now I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now go to Colossians. Flip over to your right. Galatians, you got Ephesians, you got Philippians, you got Colossians. Look at Colossians 1 6. Therefore, I, I'm sorry, 2 6. Therefore, as you have received Jesus the Lord, watch this. So walk in him. See, at a point in time you receive Christ, you're justified, you're forgiven, you received the righteousness of Christ created into your account. So now what? Now. Walk in Him. It's a new life. There has been a seed of righteousness put into your heart by the Spirit of God. You're not the man you used to be. So watch this. Um, I, I, I can't read it all. Um, gosh. Uh, go to chapter 3. Uh, go, to, uh, go to verse 5, of, uh, please, of 3. Therefore, therefore what? Because you died, verse 3, and your life is hidden with Christ. You're a new man now. now. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Before you come to know Christ, you don't consider the members of your body dead to those things. You pursue those things. So you were in college on spring break. You weren't going down to uh, Padre Island to pursue sexual purity (laughs) or to drink mineral water. Were you? No, but see, now Christ is in your life. Now watch this. For it is because of the things that the wrath of God, because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, and you were living in them. That's how you used to walk. But now you also, watch this, put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with his, old, with his evil practices and having put on. Listen, let me tell you what happens when you follow Christ. Imparted righteousness is now the life of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, which has been put into my account. Now Christ is working out his righteousness. It's a practical righteousness. So I used to lie. Don't lie anymore. By the power of Christ, quit being a liar. You don't have to do that. Quit using filthy language. You don't have to do that. Oh, I did it for joy. No, you don't have to do it anymore. You have the power of Christ. Well, I can't can't hold that back. Yes, you can, because whenever you're in a a setting where it's not appropriate, you turn it off with no problem. Yes, you do. See, when you walk in Christ with imparted righteousness, you know what you do? Here's what you do. You put off and you put on. You put the old things off, you put on the new things. Um, eight, I already read it, but now you also put them all aside. Look at verse 10. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Look at verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Are you going to get that all right instantaneously? No, but you're growing and you're learning. You're in process. 
So I had a situation recently where I had a situation going on, and there was a guy basically was trying to take advantage of me. Uh, and we had to have a conversation, and it didn't go real well. Oh, no, I'm within my rights. Actually, you're not within your rights. Back and forth, back and forth. Well, I'm not moving. I, well, I'll tell you what. I'm not moving either. And if you keep going ahead, I'm going to take the next step. Because I'm not screwing around on this deal. Of course, I said that in Christian love. <laughs> uh, but there was a fair amount, you know, at the stake there. This guy is a fairly new Christian. Goes to a different church, lives in a different area. I thought about that that night. Thought about the next morning. How oh, that isn't right. I called the guy. He didn't answer. He probably knew it was me. Went to his voicemail and I said, "Hey, um, I don't usually apologize by voicemail, but we probably won't see each other in person. It could be weeks." So I want to apologize over the phone. And what I told you that I would do, I want to tell you something. I will not do that ever. Because that would be a violation of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We got a dispute. We need to work it out between us. And that's what I will do. But I will not take that step. And I want to apologize because I was in sin. I was wrong. And I wanted to tell you that. And Let's get together, and let's just sort it out. Hey, God bless you, and bless your family. Now, why am I telling you that? Uh, next morning, I get a text. Well, bless you, Steve. God bless you and your family, and, you know. You, you know what uh, First Peter says? It says, don't return evil for evil. We're insult for insult. We'll give a blessing instead. Now, here's why I'm bringing that up. I probably wouldn't have reacted that way 20 years ago. It probably would have lingered and lingered and lingered. But hopefully, I'm learning some things. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And, and a couple times since I, well, that guy may take advantage of it. You know what? He might. He might. You know, Lord, why don't, you know, Lord, why don't you just take care of it? Why don't you defend me? Why don't you just, you know what's best for me. Why don't I just put it in your hands? Trust you. Does that make sense? Can I, uh, I'm over time, but I've already offended you. One more is not going to hurt. <laughs> Can I show you one benefit of practical righteousness? You, you see what I'm saying? Righteousness is living out the righteousness of Christ in your life. And you grow into it. You know when, hey, hey, hey when, you're not going to get this perfect. If you've got a little, little kid and he's two years old, you know, year, year and a half, you watch him develop, and you know, they, you, you love him, don't you? A little toddler, and he's learning to walk, and look at him, and he falls on his head, you know, and oh, isn't he cute, you know? Do you yell at him? You stupid kid, can't you walk? What's the matter with you? Then he poops in his diaper. Oh, gosh, I mean, is that all you do is poop and fall? Is that what you say to a little kid? Is that what you say to your little grandkids? You know, oh, aren't they cute? Let me change that diaper. See, we think when we poop and when we step on our own stuff 
and we fall down, we think God gets angry at us and mad at us, and we can't come to him. Nothing could be further from the truth. Are you going to learn to walk overnight? No, it takes time. And you learn to walk. And you learn to see. That's how it is in the Christian life. That's, I, I learned a little about the righteousness of Christ. I don't get it all right. I'm not going to get it all right. I'm never going to get it all right. But I should be growing and maturing. I, I want to tell you one of the benefits, guys, one of the benefits of, of pursuing the righteousness of Christ, just, just real practically, is that it brings joy and happiness into your life. So we talked about David a few weeks ago. David and Bathsheba. And you know, he sinned with her, then he had to get her husband killed. You know, then the baby was born, the baby was sick, the baby died. David said, I can't go to him. I, I, he can't come to me, but I'll go to him one day, which tells us that infants that die are in the presence of Christ. That's a side thing. He covers up the sin. And there are two psalms where he confesses his sin after Nathan confronts him, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. But in Psalm 51, he comes clean. And one of the things he prays after confessing his sin and hiding his sin of adultery and murder for a year, one of the things he prays in Psalm 51, 12, he prays, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Because when you don't walk in righteousness, and when you're in habitual sin and not dealing with it, you know what? There's no joy, there's no peace, there's no happiness. If the Lord puts on your heart to call someone and you've had a dispute, and the Lord puts on your heart to go get it right, get it right. You won't be at peace. There won't be joy. It's going to be a cancer sore. Am I making any sense? If there's a habitual sin, stop it by the power of Christ. David wished he, I mean, restore to me the joy of myself. Well, I've been tormented the whole time. You're a believer. You cannot keep walking in unrighteousness. He will convict you. The hound of heaven will come after you. Ian Murray did a book called The Undercover Revolution. It was about, the subtitle is How Fiction Changed Britain. He talks about the Victorian age and he says it saw a mega change in reading habits. For the first time, fiction took the primary place in book publishing. I'm going somewhere with this, and then I'm done. And the medium was taken up by brilliant and entertaining authors with an agenda for a brave new world. Such men as Thomas Hardy, H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. Many of these men were raised in Christian homes in Christian England, and they hated the gospel and the restraints of the gospel. And they would write fiction... And the underlying morality of the fiction was summed up this way. No God, no country, no family, refuse to serve in war, free love, sounds like the 60s. More play, less work, that sounds like today. No punishments, go as you please. It's difficult to imagine any program which, if carried out, would be more utterly ruinous to a country situated as Great Britain today. And that was written 100 years ago. These guys who wrote these books also held lecture series, and I'll be done with this. Listen to what they say about these guys. Well, wrong page. No wonder it didn't make sense. Listen, here was part of what they taught. That Christianity restrained you. There was no... Ha you, you can't follow that Christianity stuff, that morality stuff. Listen. Examined by the claim that they were advocates of a greater human happiness, these men were all tragic failures. Although they claimed 
that their teachings would bring about greater happiness. There is no doubt, writes one of his biographers, that though he tried to keep it secret, the last three years of Robert Louis Stevenson's life were deeply unhappy, raised by a godly father. Stevenson himself went as far as saying in a letter of 1891, only once have I been happy since he left his father's home and pursued immorality. One of Russell's favorite subjects for a popular lecture, Bertrand Russell, was happiness, in which he argued that it was perfectly possible for a man to be happy, provided he took the right steps. His hearers little knew how the speaker's own life contradicted the argument. Russell destroyed the happiness of successive wives. In a moment of truthfulness, he once wrote, I always bring misery to anyone who has anything to do with me. Why? He'd rejected the gospel. Virginia Woolf is always quoted for pictures on coffee cups at Starbucks. She was part of this whole literary movement. He says this, and, and she espoused the greater benefits and privileges and pleasures of, of, of the parting from biblical Christianity. He says, Virginia Woolf had learned that it was beyond the power of all their brilliant intellects to save the world, and in March of 1941, her pockets filled with stones and rocks, she walked into the river Aus at the age of 59 and drowned herself. The fact of the matter is there was no joy, there was no happiness, there was no contentment. In thy right hand, in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand, there are pleasures forever. It's the righteousness of Christ. Let's pursue it. Let's live it out. Let's put on the breastplate and not listen to the accuser. We thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. The enemy will pound us and destroy us and accuse us. And, hey, and he's got stuff on us. But we thank you that Jesus is our defense attorney. That Jesus died for us. That his righteousness was credited to us. And we are learning to live that out. We don't have it right. But we have a want to. And Lord, if there's a guy in here tonight that's drifted and gone the wrong way, I pray that you'll convict him. Because there's no happiness. There's just misery. May he confess his sin from his heart of hearts to you and be restored. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's where we want to be. What a great Savior you are, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.